The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today we're going to be talking with Alan Seppenwall, Rolling Stone's TV critic, about his really fun list, Fake Bands, Real Songs, The 50 Best Tunes by Made-Up Musicians. It's pegged to the release of Daisy Jones and the Six, which was, of course, Amazon's just concluded adaptation of the very popular and very enjoyable novel Daisy Jones and the Six by Taylor Jenkins Reid. And the funny thing, Alan, is your opinion on that show, as with many critics, was mixed at best, I think. I mean, it's I'm I hate to be that guy who's like the book was better, but the book is much better. <laughs> and maybe if I had not read the book, I would have a different opinion. But having read the book and having recently listened to the audiobook version, which is fantastic. It's every single change that the show made makes the story worse. And I think that there are two things that, that like are very hard to translate from the book. One of which is the book is an oral history. So the story is just this cliche like pastiche of the Fleetwood Mac story. But it's got your it's being told from all of these different perspectives 30, 40 years later. And so there's a lot of disagreement about what happened or what it meant. And that's what makes it interesting. And the show doesn't really have that. And so it's just the story and adapting the plot of Watchmen. Yes, you're getting the plot of Watchmen, but you're missing the point of Watchmen. So that's one. And the other is the thing we're here to talk about, which is with really one exception, I don't think the fake songs are very good. And in the book, you can just imagine what the band sounds like. But in the show, you have to hear them. And for the most part, it does not live up to the status of this band or, for that matter, to the quality of all of the actual 1970 songs that are peppered throughout the soundtrack. You know, that point goes to the central issue here, which is it's miraculous anytime the fake songs in a movie about fake musicians are actually good because they need to be. And the ultimate example was the number one thing on our list. You're supposed to write something from scratch that's supposed to be a huge hit in a fictional world, good enough to make some fictional band huge. And that's quite a challenge. And it's amazing it ever works in some ways. I heard an interesting thing in a similar vein, which is it's even harder to do fake comedy and have fake comedy be good. And the explanation that a bunch of stand-ups have given me is like, writing stand-up is so hard. And coming up with a great joke is so difficult and so valuable. Why would you ever give away your good material to somebody? It's not stand-up, but I guess that's essentially the the Studio 60 dilemma. Yes. If you could write a great sketch, why would you make it like a 30-second a, a snippet on Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip exactly? Yeah, no, I'm trying to think of... Right. Great stand-up routines in movies are even rarer than than great songs. I'm thinking about this list, and we'll get into it in a minute, is that there are, it does seem to focus the mind trying to write a fake song, and sometimes it works. And there is one with, there is one Daisy Jones song on the list, with a, we can jump ahead and just mention that one. 
Yeah, that's Look at Us Now, also known as Honeycomb, that was written by Marcus Mumford, Maren Morris, and a number of other people. That's really catchy, and if I'm being honest, like, I've listened to that a million times since I first watched the screeners of the show. That's really charming, and even that still is, like, a re such a big Fleetwood Mac ripoff. The guitar solo is basically straight <laughs> out of the chain, but it's just, it's really well put together, and... But the rest of the time you're listening to it, I'm like, wait, this is supposed to be the biggest band in the world. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about the number one song on this list, can I just say what it is? There's no rules here. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So the number one song on this list is That Thing You Do. And we'll talk about that a bunch more later. But even in the movie That Thing You Do, the song only gets up to number seven on the charts. Like, it is not meant to be some mm. kind of immortal, like, even dominant in the moment piece of the culture. It's this sort of ephemeral thing that people really liked for a few weeks. And that's it. And so the song can live up to that. And it's very hard, like, when you start getting into these movies and these TV shows where the song is meant to be just this huge smash, they can almost never live up to that. I think we got a few songs on the list that mostly qualify, like Shallow, but m more often than not, like, you, it's got to sound like a pretty good approximation of the real thing. What's interesting about Daisy Jones and the Six is that, like I said, you were far from the only critic to come down pretty hard <laughs> on the show. and But then it did seem to connect a little more with audiences, especially young audiences. I think one of the things that connects with is there's this tremendous underappreciated sort of, I would call it the classic rock TikTok kid audience who really, <laughs> who the people don't understand that these kids exist, but the algorithm has in its wisdom decided to be something I'm interested in, which I am on a sociological level. And there's all these kids in their teens and 20s who clearly, you know, idolize Almost Famous and Fleetwood Mac. It's like a particular sort of vein of classic rock that appeals to them. It's the glamour of that era. You can picture exactly, if you picture a cross between Almost Famous, the styles of Almost Famous and Rumors era Stevie Nicks on stage, you can understand the kind of, the exact aesthetic that appeals to them. And interestingly, this show, I think, hit that right on the head. There's been all these comparisons of Silver Springs by Fleetwood Mac with a moment on the show. So that seems to have connected. What else do you think Keeping in mind that it's not as good as the book, what else do you think actually made it work on some level, the show? I, I mean, I think that's certainly part of it. I think Riley Keough is just fantastic. This yeah. is the role, like, she's someone who it feels like has been around for a long time and people keep trying to make her happen, but she's <laughs> really specific in a bunch of ways. And this is just the really ideal use of her. Maybe not the only ideal use of her, but an ideal use of her. She she can sing. She's got those genes. She carries herself like a rock star, but she also seems like vulnerable and human. She is really good. So I would say it starts with that. Sam Claflin, I also think, is excellent. And the chemistry between the two of them, when you put them on the same mic together, singing songs, even if the other songs aren't as good, it's like there's a real just heat and electricity pouring off the screen from them. Yeah, he's supposed to be the kind of the Lindsey Buckingham, but I think he said in interviews that he actually based himself on Bruce Springsteen in many ways, studied him closely, even though he hadn't been a fan before, but he studied him in such detail that he became a fan. And it's funny, but that won't be the only time we're mentioning Bruce on this show. He comes up a lot in the uh, fake, fake band world, interestingly. And then Riley is, almost needless to say, Elvis Presley's granddaughter. And it was remarkable to see behind the scenes clips of her learning guitar. 
It's very funny that somehow that no one thought to teach her that, given her heritage, but she seems so natural holding one and so natural on stage. At a certain point, that heritage obviously comes into play here. Yeah, I can also imagine if you're Elvis's granddaughter at a certain point, you're like, look, I don't want anything to do with the music. Come on. there's a, It's a no-win scenario. There's very, uh, there definitely have been second-generation music stars, but more often than not, you get somebody like Frank Sinatra Jr. You know what I'm saying? It's like, they just, it's too high a bar to clear to be worth trying. What moments work the least and what work the best in the show now that it's concluded? The best, I think, is the last episode, which is largely set on the day of the band's final performance where they fall apart. And even that, like, when I re-listen to the audiobook, I'm like, no, the thing in the book is better than this, but it's still, like, it, it has a sense of grandeur to it, and it's the one time where I really did believe, oh, yes, this was just a gigantic band for a minute, and here are all the reasons they fell apart. So that's very good, but it's almost entirely, like, soap operatic and the book mm. has so much about the creative push pull of the band just really getting into the nitty-gritty of how songs are written and disagreements between different members of the group and that's the point to, of doing this and the show drops almost all of that out ouch yeah there are 50 songs on this list tell me a little <laughs> bit about the choices and process and also what you are kind of hurting about leaving off all right let's see the we had to come up with rules. I'm, I've written a whole bunch of big professional lists over the years, and rules to me are the only way to make it sane, because otherwise it's like you're, the field is too big, it becomes impossible to compare things. So one of the first things we said was no cover songs. So obviously the commitments would be really high. The Blues Brothers would have something on here, etc. But it's like, no, we want songs specifically written for these movies or shows. Then we said we don't want, like, musicians who are basically playing themselves. So otherwise the whole top 10 would be the Purple Rain soundtrack because they, <laughs> you can't really live up to that. We didn't want to have Lose Yourself or anything else from 8 Mile, things like that. As it is, I think there, there's a couple things that wound up on the list that are kind of borderline. You could say it's cheating to have a Lady Gaga song at number three. And my <laughs> counter argument to that would be A, she's playing a character and B, she's doing a duet with Bradley Cooper and his presence alone qualifies it as a fake band, even though it's Gaga doing it. Then you're trying to obviously cover a lot of eras. There's a number of different generations on the Rolling Stone staff alone. You're trying to cover lots of different genres. One iteration of the list had, I think, seven different fake boy band songs. And all of them are really good, and I'm not going to knock any of them, but at a certain point, you're like, okay, we want to have a bit more diversity of style of music. My theory on that, by the way, is because what's great about boy bands is, in a sense, every boy band song is fake anyway. They're all fictionally cast <laughs> bands yes. that there's literally no difference between a boy band in a movie and a boy band in real life. This was another gray area. Like, we've got a Spinal Tap song on here, and a bunch of people said, like, why is Spinal Tap on this list? They still perform. We explicitly chose not to have the monkeys on there because our colleague Andy Green, the biggest monkeys expert I know, was like, no, at a certain point, they just became a real band, so you can't use them. And other people said, why didn't that apply to Spinal Tap? What would you say to that, Brian? The answer is actually really simple. When Spinal Tap performs, it's these famous actors in wigs using different names even to this day. 
Yes. They're still characters. Whereas when the monkeys perform, they're just the Michael Nesmith and stuff. So it, it, there's an obvious difference there. To be honest, I don't even think that's a close call. I always knew that thing you do would be number one, but almost everything else was up for grabs. And in the midst of this, I'm doing the list and it, periodically someone on staff would send me an email or send me a Slack message saying, hey, is this on there? And I would slap my forehead and say, God, no. And that should be. And then it became what's going off. And this continued literally up to the day it was published, the day after it was published. We published the story. And someone on Twitter says, what about Hearts Beat Loud? And I was like so mad at myself because that song from a really lovely independent movie with Kirsten Clemens and um, Nick Offerman, like it's all built around the song and the song's really good and I listen to it often and I can't believe it did not occur to me to at least have it in contention. So it's just, there's a surprising amount of really excellent songs in this particular weird genre. There's a few others. It was like Yip Op Ork Ah in terms of like old school from the Jetsons. That seemed like a natural one, but at a certain point we were running out of room and I thought other songs were better. And that often became the tiebreaker is do we go with something for what it represents or how influential it was, or do we go with the better song? And sometimes we did the former, but mostly we did the latter. So that was one. I really like this movie Still Crazy. And there were a couple different songs there by the fake band Strange Fruit that we were considering and couldn't quite make it. I know a bunch of like our millennial fans are not happy that we didn't include Killer Tofu from Doug. So there's, there's different things that we tried to have, but ultimately I think we came up with a list I'm happy with. I guess I do miss the Jetsons thing considerably, which was covered by the Violent Femmes and stuff. It's a classic. I still have yeah. that album yeah. of, of all the Gen X bands playing Saturday morning cartoon hits. The <laughs> Tanya Donnelly version of the Josie and the Pussycats song slaps. <laughs> I would jump to number 47, Werewolf Bar Mitzvah, Tracy Jordan. Werewolf Bar Mitzvah, spooky, scary, boys becoming men, men becoming wolves. Werewolf. Which I love because it, it really started as a complete throwaway gag. And they ended up writing the whole song. Even for the title alone, even if there wasn't a song, it would probably belong on there. You just reminded me of another rule, which is it has to be a song that in the universe of the show or movie was actually released commercially or presented as <laughs> being performed by a band or artist. Because 30 Rock obviously has lots and lots of fake songs. And so, like, we talked about Muffin Tops. We talked about Rural Juror. We talked about several <laughs> other things. But Werewolf Bar Mitzvah, in addition to being delightful, seemed the closest to actually being true to the spirit of what we were trying to do. And yes, they did it. It was like a seven minute cutaway gag. Everybody loved it. And at a certain point they said, okay, we have to do a real thing. And because they threw it together so quickly on the final version of the track, Donald Glover is doing a Tracy Morgan impression for at least half of it. And yes, the bonus that is also almost a Childish Gambino song technically is yes. a, a nice twist. Yeah, I was very pleased when I discovered that in the research. Now, number 46, it's funny because, yeah, you're ranking by the quality of songs. If you were ranking by sort of impact within the show or movie, I would probably rank this a lot higher because it's a truly classic sitcom scene when it's revealed, which is number 46 is Let's Go to the Mall, Robin Sparkles. And it's, of course, the moment when Kobe Smulders Robin has something that she doesn't want them to know about it. And they think it's like a porn career, but it is yes. not. 
She was a, t a teen Canadian pop star who played at malls, basically like young Alanis crossed with Tiffany. And that's an interesting one because, yes, it's a great moment. It's it's very rare that you find a show where every single viewer of the show agrees on what the best episode is. But that episode of How I Met Your Mother with Let's Go to the Mall and the Slap Bet, there is no one who will dispute that. And the, it's a great and delightful song. It's, it's terrible in the same way that a, no a lot of these other ones are. But yeah, it just, it makes me happy thinking about it. And that's another one where the full length version has even more humor in it because like there's a few Canadian references in the thing that aired on CBS, but they really start going to town when you listen to the three or four minute version. And it's really most complete with the video, which has some of the greatest sort of acid wash looks and hairstyles <laughs> and even an Omnibot 3000, which was a robot from the 80s that truly did not work if you ever knew anyone who had it. And there's that great like in-universe joke where they have to explain due to the fact that the writers are older than the characters. Somebody says like, but Robin, this was the like mid-1990s. Oh, Why yeah. does it look like an 80s video? And she's like, in Canada, every everything came to us five years later than in the US. <laughs> there's also, not to dwell this too long, but it's also very... It's hilarious. The conceit that someone could be, which is true, by the way, that someone could be so famous in Canada and be unknown. And it is true that Alanis Morissette was that famous in Canada and not one person in the United States knew her when she came out with her more adult material. So the joke is actually true, which is very strange. Wait, wait, whoa. <laughs> I was a dedicated viewer of You Can't Do That on television. So I, of course, oh, that's true. knew Alanis. Okay. Fair but enough. I was a musician. But you didn't know her music career. Yes. we. Yes. <laughs> People did recognize her from that. Yes. <laughs> from being slimed, right? Yes. Yes. I actually had forgotten that number 45 was a quote unquote fake song. This is one that's really entered the, uh, the lexicon. Number 45, give him something he can feel. My love was sure. Sister and the Sisters from the great movie Sparkle. Yeah, this was a Rob Sheffield special. There's a number of, so a lot of these songs on the list were proposed by many people. And then there's four or five that were just Rob Sheffield saying, no, this has to be on here. I will fight you if this is not on here. This was one of them. And it, it's an incredible song that like Whitney Houston loved Sparkle. And there's, that's definitely a very good example of creating the feeling exactly like you said, where it feels like it has to be a real song and not something that was invented for the movie. I guess, interestingly, is this is one that did cross over into being a quote-unquote real song because En Vogue had a huge hit with it in the 90s, and I think that's where most people who weren't uh, watching movies in 1976 know it from. So. Weird yes. case there. We're going to get to a few others yeah. later on in the list where, like, th they actually wound up becoming part of a real musician's, like, set list. And number 44, is it's a tough choice because th there's a lot of Simpsons moments that you could have chosen. But here we have Baby on Board by the B Sharps from the Homer's Barbershop Quartet episode, a classic. Baby on board. Yeah, I, there's a million great Simpson songs, but this gets back to that rule, which is there's only a handful of them where the one of the characters is actually like a musical performer. So we could have done when Bart right. is in the boy band that's trying to get people to join the Navy, <laughs> uh, some of the Lurleen Lumpkin tunes, things like that. But Hummer's Barbershop Quartet is one of the best Simpsons episodes, period, especially if you are a Beetlehead like you or myself. And yeah, no, it had to be that. And another case where it must have been hard to choose one thing is number four. 42's Walk Hard. Walk hard, hard down life's rocky road. Credited here to Dewey Cox from the 
great and underrated movie, Walk Hard, which I am only now realizing is a 16-year-old movie. How is that possible? <laughs> How is that and possible? More importantly, it's been 16 years and people keep making music biopics <laughs> in the exact format that Walk Hard should have destroyed forever. Yeah, that was, there's a number, that's one, Best of Both Worlds is another one where it was, do we just go with the, the theme song? Is that too obvious? Are we being basic here? And then a certain person's like, no, this is just, this is the song we should go with. This is obvi the obvious choice and don't overthink it. It's a great song. It's not, and it's not the funniest song. The funniest moment in the whole movie is the, is probably, I think it's Royal Jelly. Is that the Dylan? Which is absolutely hilarious. One of the best Dylan parodies of all time. Maybe Bob Dylan sounds a lot like me. You know, how come nobody ever asked Bob Dylan why you sound so much like Dewey Cox? Mailboxes drip like lampposts in the twisted birth canal of the Coliseum. In fact, I probably might have gone for that, but I understand. What card has, has that emotional kick to it? Yeah, no, it's we couldn't not have a Dewey Cox song on there. No way. Walk Hard, classic movie, and yes, should have should have destroyed biopics. Although, talk to James Mangold about that, and he he because he obviously directed Walk the Line, which was the closest thing to the direct inspiration for it. And he had two things to say, which is that he was a bit outraged that Walk Hard had a bigger budget than Walk the Line, which is pretty funny. <laughs> and number two, that he did not think that just it should end biopics. He disagrees. Let's put it that way. But yeah, uh, that, I, it's funny that you say that about the budget, because I remember once interviewing Jonathan Frakes, not long after galaxy quest had come out. And his first response <laughs> was, I watched it and I'm like, where are they getting this FX budget from? We never had anything that good in any of the star Trek movies. That's why it's the best star Trek movie. Um, it is. And number 41, another great show, another great moment with a fake band. And here we have, Andy Dwyer, played by Chris Pratt, had his band that had a million names, as you point out. And at this point, it was called Mouse Rat, and he recorded 5,000 Candles in the Wind. And though we all miss you every day, we know you're Yeah, this is actually my second favorite Parks and Rec song. My favorite <laughs> one is one that does not actually air on the TV show, but was a deleted scene and I think is now restored to some of the streaming versions, which is later on when Andy becomes kids entertainment star Johnny Karate. <laughs> At some children's party, he performs a song called Sudden Death, where it's just him recounting the plot of the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie. <laughs> and if you have not heard it, I implore you to go to YouTube and find it because it is incredible. And I believe Pratt improvised it on the spot. But no, 5,000 Candles in the Wind is like the signature song of Parks and Recreation. It's played a whole lot of times, first at Lil Sebastian's Memorial, and then multiple times throughout that. Like, that's like, more than anything, the symbol of that show's ability to combine things that are utterly ridiculous with genuine, like, emotional sentiment. And so it had to be that. I think we'll jump to a very, I don't know if uh, younger generations have picked up on this movie, but a, a truly hilarious movie. 1984's Top Secret, one of Val Kilmer's absolute career peaks. And his, it's funny, a musical moment before he played Jim Morrison in The Doors. And this was his song. He was Nick Rivers, and the song was Spend This Night With Me. I'm all alone, my heart's an empty home, to see you standing there. Yeah, that was... A, Top Secret is an incredible comedy. I think it's the best of all of the different Zucker Brothers movies. It's better than Airplane. It's better than The Naked Gun. It's just really delightful. It's this weird parody of both Elvis movies 
and <laughs> like Cold War thrillers and World War II movies all at the same time. And he's got a bunch of songs. There's one where it starts out as Are You Lonesome Tonight? And it somehow morphs <laughs> into a commercial for Macy's. But spend this night with me when he performs that. And you just see all of the girls screaming and in, in utter hysterics worse than anything you ever saw at a Beatles show. <laughs> That's the one. Like it even... <laughs> He has a song about surfing and skeet shooting at the same time, and we did not pick that. So that should tell you all you need to know about how good Spend This Night With Me is. Yeah, it occurs to me this is one of those parodies I watched as a kid without knowing any of the things that it was originally spoofing. Oh, I yeah, still found entirely. it really funny. Yeah. Yeah, so for me, it's, oh, it's, oh, poor Omar Sharif is crushed in the car. That's funny, but I'm not getting any of your references. And number 36 by a band featuring one of the greatest, most iconic drummers of all time, Animal. The song is Can You Picture That by Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. And this is from the original 1979 The Muppet movie. Yeah, the, again, the Muppets are like the Simpsons in that there are a million great songs. Many of them, I would say, better than Can You Picture That, but they're not really eligible. Like Kermit, like playing Rainbow Connection while sitting on a log in a swamp in Florida. That's amazing, but it's he's not like a concert performer or anything like that. So that didn't qualify. And I, even though they're performing all, all the other songs within the context of the Muppet show, that didn't seem quite right to me either, whereas Dr. Teeth and Electric Mayhem are established as an actual band. And they've got a good bunch of good ones, but can you picture that? Just the sheer psychedelia of it. There, there was nothing else I really felt strongly about in the same way. And number 34, we just had, during the run of the Broadway musical, we had Cameron Crowe on talking about Almost Famous. But this was the song that made... And there's a this is a case for a bunch of songs on this list. If this song hadn't been convincing, the movie would not have worked. And the song is Stillwater's Fever Dog. All right. Are you ready for a blasphemous opinion here, Brian? <laughs> okay. I don't like Fever Dog. I just, I, but I also don't think it cripples the movie because I think part of the idea of the movie is that Stillwater is not a great band. <laughs> They're referred to repeatedly as a mid-level band with an incredible guitarist. And that, I think, comes across in Fever Dog, like Russell Hammond is just shredding and the rest of it. It definitely sounds like a song from that era. It's completely convincing in that way. But, like, I'm never tempted to go and listen to it outside the context of watching the movie. And it was one of those things where I, I knew that my voice was should not be the loudest one in the room on this. And it had many other champions. And so, of course, it's on there. But this is definitely... If it was just Alan Sepinwall's list of the top 50 fake songs of all time, it would not be on there. And I'm sorry, Cameron. I love the movie. It's a masterpiece, but no. I guess my conception of the list is that maybe the list wouldn't make the greatest, wouldn't have to make the greatest mixtape of all time. But in the sense that, I think you're right, in the sense that it's not a great song, but a completely convincing song that would make a band hit the exact level. Yeah. I think it's one of the most correct fake songs of all time. How about that? <laughs> no, I will, I will totally yeah. allow that. I have no major beef 
with Fever Dog, it's just not like a favorite song of mine in the way that a number of these are. Like while I was working on the list and in the like weeks after it was published, I like made myself a little playlist of a bunch of songs on it and I would just listen to them every day like when I was out on my walk. And that was never one that was on there. And number 33, it's almost cheating just because it's so good. <laughs> but all the music from Hedvig and, and the Angry Inches really pretty incredible. I actually hadn't thought about it in a while since I saw Neil Patrick Harris do it quite well, by the way, on Broadway. But such great fake punk, fake Bowie, fake glam rock stuff in that musical. So how did you chose, I think, the opening song, Tear Me Down. This was another tough decision where it's like, on the one hand, it is a play and then a movie about a fake band. But on the other hand, I remember we had a lot of debates about, should we have something from Dreamgirls on there? And the feeling was that, like, while we're hearing snippets of what the Dreamgirls group is doing, for the mm. most part, the songs are not really diegetic. It's more, I'm telling you, I'm not going where the characters are singing about their feelings. And I think Hedwig... Inter- hits the sweet spot between the two ideas more consistently. And yeah, like you say, the songs are just incredible. And I think this was one where I put it to the group, look, we're going to have a Hedwig song on here. Which one should we do? And Tear Me Down ultimately got the most support. Number 31 is a movie that I low-key might be weirdly one of my favorite movies ever. I've watched this movie so many times. I love, I've always loved the million Rolling Stone references in it. I think they say Rolling Stone like 30 more times in it than Almost Famous. Such a great romantic comedy. Music and lyrics. And with great music, mostly are all written by the great Adam Schlesinger, who will come up again, who was, of course, the genius behind Fountains of Wayne and Ivy. Unfortunately, died of COVID a couple of years ago and is very much missed. And, oh man, w- way back into love. I've been looking for someone to shed some light. Not somebody And so Hugh Grant plays this hilariously washed up pop singer. It's the idea was it's like he's supposed to be maybe the other guy in Wham was is that sort of yes, the yeah, yeah, because, yeah because when you see the opening number which we'll talk about again in a minute it's very blatantly Wham and the other guy has remained successful and so he's supposed to be Andrew Ridgely and so it's just basically he needs to write one great song and it ends up being from this a very personal place not to give away the plot of the movie and it's a great ballad and I forget the name of the young actress who plays. The, uh, the teen pop star, but his interactions with her and into her world and the way that she's surprisingly human and sweet actually also reminds me of some of my own experiences with meeting some young pop superstars. The whole thing is just a deeply charming and underrated movie and a song good enough to live up to a moment when he's put under the spotlight and has to play it under Madison Square Garden. And that could have been ridiculous if the song wasn't good. Yeah, the actress is Haley Bennett, by the way. And- Haley Bennett, yes. First of all, when we published the list, I got a lot of pushback about why we didn't go with the fake Wham! song, Pop Goes My Heart, which is catchy (laughs) as hell and really funny. But it's got to be way back into love, both because it's what the movie is ultimately about, but also because that thing you do, which we'll talk about later, you have to hear this song in so many different versions so many times throughout the movie. Right. And you should get tired of it. 
at a certain point and you never do it. It's it's so versatile and so just like enduring that like even when Cora Corman turns it into a sexy Indian flavored rave or whatever you want to call it, it still even works like that, even though that's clearly not how the song should be ultimately recorded or performed. That was like Schlesinger's gift. If there is a master of the form of the convincing fake song, it was him. And yeah, I, w I really wish that we would have many more decades to come of those from him. And number 30, we talked about a bit. It's the one good song you said from Daisy Jones and the Six. Yes. Look at us now, Honeycomb. Oh, we can make a good thing oh. That's just, like I said, it's a, it sounds very, at times it sounds blatantly Fleetwood Mac-esque, but it's got like a really lovely build. It's got great harmonies. Keo and Claflin are doing their own singing and it just builds. And I listened to it yesterday. I listened to it the day before. Mm -hmm. Whatever other issues I have with the show, I feel like that song is going to be a part of my life going forward. And so that right there, that's something, that's not just recency bias here. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Number 28, another sort of a movie that I'll never forget, like weirdly flopped at the box office and yet is now a real touchstone. So weird and a great graphic novel beforehand. Really fun movie, Scott Pilgrim versus the world. And the song, great song, We Are Sex Bomb," written by Beck. Yes. I saw the premiere of this movie at Comic-Con that summer. <laughs> and so that's the most like in the tank crowd you could possibly see a movie with. And of course they all went nuts for it. And I come out thinking, okay, obviously this is going to be an enormous hit and it bummed me out when it didn't become that. And the other thing is after they did the screening, Edgar Wright says, ladies and gentlemen, metric. And he had metric come out to do black sheep, <laughs> which is the song Brie Larson performs in the movie. <laughs> and that, again, came down to that whole rule of it has to be written for the movie and Black Sheep was pre-existing. And so even though I think that's the best number in the film, we couldn't use it. And that the opening bit where you're seeing them do We Are Sex, Babam, and the camera is pulling back into infinity as the credits play. Just it left me so amped for the rest of the movie. And Beck, it turns out, good at songwriting. Who knew? <laughs> it's funny. It's uh, it's a great lost 2000s garage rock song is him writing in a totally different vein in fact when i played it the other day the spotify algorithm immediately gave me a hive song to follow so that's what it thinks it is so i love that yeah i like when you can have these things written by look at us now there's a version that that mumford and morris recorded themselves and when you hear them do it it's, oh yeah this sounds like things that they do already 
this does not sound like a, a typical Beck song necessarily. So I like that about it. Number 24 is Please Mr. Kennedy. Please Mr. Kennedy. The John Glenn Singers, Inside Llewyn Davis, a somewhat Ugh. underrated Coen Brothers movie, and an absolutely fantastic scene, and the most likable Adam Driver has ever been on screen <laughs> in, in that moment. And it's just basically, it's the conceit, which is so funny, is that Oscar Isaac's Llewyn Davis needs some money, and he's such a pretentious dick of a folk singer, but he needs some <laughs> money, so he agrees, he agrees to perform on this song, this hilarious thing please mr kennedy outer space it's just it's an amazing moment i remember watching that the first time i saw lewin davis and just being like struggling to contain my glee at how ridiculous the song was but also how catchy it was and there's a bit right after he performs it where he goes up to a guy at the head of the studio and says look i need a little extra money can you just pay me as like a, a day player or something as opposed to a credited musician and the guys you're going to lose your cut of royalties there and lewin very clearly thinks that this does not matter this no one's ever going to listen to the song when it is so obvious in the scene that in 1960 whatever this would have been an enormous novelty hit that would have played forever <laughs> and lewin would have made a lot of money from it but it's a movie about a guy who's a schmuck and self-destructive at every turn so of course that is the decision that he would make and the fact that the writing team included Justin Timberlake, T-Bone Burnett, and the Coen brothers, a truly unique team of creators there. Yeah, and the funny thing is T-Bone Burnett, and we quote this in the list, said it's supposed to be bad in the film, but it also still has to be great. And that's basically it. Like, it's, you understand why Lewin hates it, and you also understand exactly why it was about to be a hit. And the, number 23 is a, another case where it's so, so hard to Ugh. pick which song and a movie that, despite the fact that the culture it parodies is long gone, holds up from start to finish. Right now, you can show it to a kid and they'll love it if they have any taste at all. Oh, it's you maybe know, my daughter's yeah. favorite comedy. Yeah, there you go. And then from and this is Spinal Tap, and I'm partial to tonight. I'm going to rock you tonight. But I think what's great about Big Bottom. <laughs> among other things, is it there's so many levels to Spinal Tap, and one of the things is the jokes aren't just lyrical, the jokes are musical as well, and the fact that they every single member of the band plays bass on it, and the song is called Big Bottom, is just so inherently funny. <laughs> then the lyrics, which are just so hilariously crass. The greatest lyric in Spinal Tap history, which was, my baby fits me like a flesh tuxedo. I'd like to sink her with my pink torpedo. Every single line is funny, actually. I remember uh, years and years ago, he was doing some show for HBO. I interviewed Christopher Guest, and we ta I talked about the fact that even though he makes all of these movies about failed artists or inept artists in different ways, usually like the songs are catchy and he says yeah you have to do that because otherwise it would just be unbearable to sit through spinal tap or a mighty wind or even something like waiting for guffman and certainly like he and michael mckeon and harry shearer are very gifted songwriters <laughs> even if they're writing these just really developmentally awful <laughs> songs with these juvenile lyrics and everything it's great this was a one where there was maybe the most debate on the entire list in terms of which song from this movie or this group 
are we going to use? Because I was pushing it like you for tonight. I'm going to Rocky tonight. There was a big Stonehenge contingent. Heavy duty. Some people liked, I think, for the solo where they start just randomly playing classical music. There, there's just, you really can't go wrong. Working on a sex farm. Come on. Are the lyrics to this really dumber than Love in an Elevator? I'm not sure. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, that was very, it was very hard. And it's also interesting that this is not even like the highest ranked Christopher Guest movie song, but we'll get to that. We'll jump quickly to number 20 and just want to shout it out because it's Nobody Like You by the fake boy band Four Town in the really great Pixar movie, Turning Red. It's very cool that they got Billie Eilish and Phineas to write these boy band songs, and it is very dead on boy band parody. Yeah, you watch that, and it's really it's indistinguishable from the big hits of that era. It's really very well done. And number 19, it's from a show that I'm not familiar with, but the song is great. Tell me about this one. Okay, so this is Bashir with the Good Beard from We Are Lady Parts. show on Peacock about a London punk band where all the members are like women who are Muslim. And so it's like they come together and this is their way of rebelling against their culture. And there's sort of a tradition in these kinds of movies and shows, and there's at least one other song in the list that we'll talk about, where it's like you see a song basically being improvised on the spot and it immediately sounds ready to be played on the radio. And this is one of these. So the new lead guitarist of the band is just complaining about her dating life. And she says something like, I'm just sick of being expected to go marry Bashir with the good beard. And someone <laughs> says, that's a song. And they start playing it and it's fully formed almost right away. And it's really terrific. And the show is so funny and has a bunch of other really excellent songs. And I'm it's supposed to be back hopefully sometime this year, but it's been on a pre- pretty long hiatus so far because that's just the way tv works these days i have no idea why this reminded me of this but an example of a song that couldn't be on this list that some people might have looked for was the uh, the freaky friday song which is a great song but not a fake song Yeah, that's the hard part. We're going to get to something else down the road in a minute when we get to the number two song. But yeah, there's a lot where it's like you think something is fake and maybe it isn't. And that's always the hard one. That one is a weird case where it was actually originally recorded by an Australian alt-rock band named Lash. And it's really freaky to watch the video for that because I think a lot of people assume that's a fake song. It's it's the equivalent of of Take Me to the Mall in that you can have a huge (laughs) hit in Australia, but sometimes Americans might not know it at all. Number 18, pretty archetypal fake band, fake song, Sugar yes. Sugar by the Archies. Yeah, this, even if you had no idea that, like, it had anything to do with Archie comics or that Archie cartoon from the late 60s, Sugar, it has endured, it's been all over the place. There was, I don't know if you remember this, sometime in the 90s, there was the TV movie called Back to Riverdale. Yes. Where it's about, yeah, you, okay, so it's middle-aged Archie and Jughead and everyone coming back for, like, their high school reunion. And and there's a moment where Jughead is trying to encourage (laughs) his teenage son about something, and he starts doing Sugar as a rap. And it is the most mortifying thing you will ever see. And it's, like, such a desecration of what is just this irresistible, like, bubblegum song. 
And as the entry notes, 1969, a year in which, I don't know, the first Velvet Underground and first Led Zeppelin albums came out, in which Dusty and Memphis came out, the number one single was, in fact, Sugar Sugar. Yeah, <laughs> biggest. We always yeah. think of, like, the culture as being more revolutionary than it actually is. But great song, great riff. And fake bands sometimes are better than real ones. What are you going to do? Yes. Number 17, a great song. I've seen Eddie Vedder cover it, and the song is Falling Slowly. This is from Once. This is one of the ones I was alluding to earlier where I thought it was pre-existing because Glenn Hansard, who's the lead in that movie, there's a version of it by his band The Frames that I believe came out before the movie did. But then when I researched it, it turned out he wrote it for the movie. The movie just took a really long time to come out. (laughs) And so in between, he said to his band, let's record this and put it on an album. But it was written for the film. It's an incredible song, played at the Oscars. There was that memorable moment. Where Marquita Erglova, you know, his co-singer on it and writer, like, was cut off by the band before she could deliver her speech. And after the commercial break, Jon Stewart brought her back on. And it's another one of those songs where you have to hear it a million times in different versions over the course of the film. And it holds up throughout. It's really lovely. And number 16, I have to admit, the Ruddles, I hate to admit it, the Ruddles, a bit of a blind spot for me. I've watched bits and pieces, probably enough that I've seen basically the whole movie of... 1978's mockumentary, All You Need Is Cash. The Ruddles were, of course, the first big Beatles parody. I think I think maybe in 1978, the idea of a fake biopic and parodying the Beatles and everything was fresher, and so it was funnier. I don't know, and I realize it's the guys from Monty Python. I don't know. It just never got through to me. I, I may, you, you might be a fan of it. I was a fan, but again, I came to it like much earlier. I think I watched it in college or something, when again, it still seemed fairly novel to have done that. And this is another a Sheffield special. I think we knew we were going to have a Ruddle song, but I was more inclined to go with something like Get Up and Go, where it just very blatantly sounds like the song it's parroting, in that case, Get Back. And Rob's no Cheese and Onions is their best song. And it sounds like something the Beatles would have recorded without actually sounding like any specific Beatles song. Yeah, it's it's all right. <laughs> but I, I appreciate, as always, I appreciate Rob's passion for it. Yes. Um, and number 15 is from the monster show Empire. And yes. this song is You're So Beautiful. Sometimes you feel insecure. Trust me, babe, I understand. Yeah, there was both Empire and Nashville, the TV show, not the movie, although we have a song from the movie as well on here. It's like they're doing two or three original songs a week. And so it's it becomes, and they're being written by top songwriters. Like T-Bone Burnett was producing a lot of the Nashville music, for instance, I believe at first. And so it becomes very hard to figure out what's the best one. And so that was another one where there was a lot of polling, a lot of discussion among the staff, a lot of like long YouTube rabbit holes before ultimately deciding that this one is really the best. Yeah, so number 14 is from the movie Streets of Fire. And here we have yet another Springsteen thing because... The original idea was to get Bruce Springsteen songs for the soundtrack that didn't work out. And so Jim Steinman, who was heavily influenced specifically by Born to Run and all the stuff he did for for Meatloaf, and in this, wrote this absolutely more Steinman than Steinman melodramatic power ballad thing for this movie. Tonight is what it means to be young.
another Sheffield one. It was like, if you don't put this on, we can no longer be friends kind of thing. <laughs> I, I've never seen Streets of Fire. And it's funny because like I've seen the other Michael Pere fake 80s band movie that is one spot ahead of it a million times. But for whatever reason, that one always just eluded me. But the song is incredible. I've listened to it and obviously it had to be on there. Total Eclipse of the Heart is understated compared to this song. It's really like just it's in in. Jim, even by Jim Steinman's standards, it's quite bombastic. It's really something. Number 13 is such a weird case. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Yeah, I want to hear your perspective yeah, on it before and, I ramble. And here we are back in, in Springsteenville. It's interesting. Uh, and you know, this is a song that I think a lot of people before the internet, I think a lot of people really thought this was a Bruce Springsteen song. It specifically sounds like the song She's the One, which interestingly is a sound that Bruce himself never replicated. The only Bruce Springsteen song that sounds like She's the One is She's the One. But this song, On the Dark Side, sounds a lot, sounds like the sequel to She's the One. Movie is attributed to Eddie and the Cruisers. This is another movie that was on cable like every five seconds when I was a kid, and yet I've never seen it from start to finish, only from bits and pieces again, but probably I have seen the whole thing. And oh, I've seen the whole thing straight through many times because I was one of those kids who just put HBO on when he got home from school, which is just a very specific Gen X thing because there was not like, if I was a kid now, I would either be gaming or I would be watching, I would be streaming something specifically for my demographic and not some weird movie about a fake early 1960s band that for some reason sounds like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. Um, <laughs> right. Very strange. And of course, we should mention that the real band was John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band who had their own kind of accusations of Bruce ripoff, but it's probably the greatest Bruce ripoff of, of all time. All right. I'm, this is another confession now. I very seriously thought about putting this ahead of the actual Bruce Springsteen written song <laughs> on this list because it's, I love it so much and I've heard it a million times and it does sound so much like something Bruce would have done. And there's a certain point where I'm like, look, no, I cannot reward John Cafferty to that degree for slavishly imitating the boss, especially because, again, it makes no sense within the context of the movie that a Jersey Shore bar band from 1963 would sound like this. This is not what anybody was doing at that time. It would not have been successful at that time. So on that level, it fails the movie. It's just such a good song that, like, I couldn't leave it off. What's interesting, when you listen to it carefully, it sounds like she's the one rewritten by John Mellencamp. That's what it yes. actually sounds like. What it doesn't sound remotely like it is a song from the early 60s. <laughs> you know, and this is another movie where you've got a scene where the song is, it had already been written by the Tom Berenger character, but like he plays it and the band all hates it. And so on the spot, Michael Pere is like, no, you got to do it like this. And he rearranges it. And instantly the rest of the band all gets up and knows exactly how to play it. Because magic <laughs> right. in the movies, baby. That's done, I think, multiple times at Walk Hard. I will say, Nothing is Anachronistic, though, is a song that can't be on this list. And I've mentioned this many times, but it, at the end of Dirty Dancing, when diegetically, I've had the time of my life, I think is the one that's playing in the movie. And yeah. these characters in the early 60s are hearing a song that has drum machines, blatantly loud drum <laughs> machines in it. It drives me insane. It's insane. I can't stand it. The only thing you can do is in your mind project that what they're hearing is different than what you're hearing? Is this a science fiction world? How are their drum <laughs> like it, it drives me it drives me insane. I know it's really nerdy, but it really bothers Brian, me. Brian, drum machines <laughs> sound exactly like real drums. What are you talking about? It's yeah, it's it, an otherwise totally plausible movie ruined. Number twelve, 
What a great movie. What a hilarious movie. From a Mighty Win 2003, the same team from Spinal Tab. A kiss at the end of the rainbow, Mitch and Mickey. When the veil of dreams has lifted and the fairy tales. Oh my God. I recently rewatched this movie in part inspired by working on this list, and I love it so much. And it's the least funny of all of the different Christopher Guest movies, but I don't think it's really trying to be. It's much more gentle and often sincere in a way. And like, A Kiss at the End of the Rainbow is meant to be like a shallow song, but like a genuinely like beautiful one that you understand why it would have been a success and why it would have held so much power for these people. And you got Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara up on stage and there's this big emotional arc between them because they were once a couple and then he fell victim to depression and they broke up and she's moved on and he's clearly still hung up on her. And are they going to kiss? Are they not going to kiss? It's just, it's so like powerful and people are crying during the scene. I admit that I got a little choked up watching it this time. This is a really good one that Michael McKean and, and his wife Annette O'Toole wrote. And it really like absolutely lives up to the billing. And it on the one hand, it feels weird that we've our Spinal Tap song is in the 20s. But, like, I couldn't rank it above this one in the guest canon. They have more genuine affection for the genres of music they're parodying in that movie than they do for Spinal Tap as part of it. Yes, exactly. And I believe that the three guys were playing the folksmen, like, on stage (laughs) and stuff, even in either the 70s or the early 80s. Like, these were characters they'd been doing for a long time before they actually made the movie. And I guess before Spinal Tap, which is remarkable. Yes. So number 11, I'm shocked by how good this song is. Uh, the song is Drive It Like You Stole It, and it's from Sing Street. Yeah, this is another, like once, this is a John Carney movie. John Carney specializes in doing these movies about fake musicians. The songs are always really good. I thought seriously about including the, I'm trying to remember the name of the movie, but it's with like Mark Ruffalo and Keira Knightley and Haley Steinfeld. Oh, yeah. The song, yeah, the song that Keira Knightley writes and Haley Steinfeld kind of, it, and she records it with Haley Steinfeld. That's really good. Drive It Like You Stole It is like that whole album is bangers. It's about like an Irish teenager in the 1980s. He starts a band entirely to impress a girl. And then it turns out that like he and his bandmates are great. And the sort of the running gag of the movie is you will see him like watching MTV and listening to music of the time. And he'll watch Duran Duran. And then suddenly like his next song sounds exactly like a Duran Duran ripoff. And to drive it like you stole it is him doing Hall and Oates. Like I, the <laughs> beat is basically Maneater, but it becomes this just incredible anthem. If this list was entirely Alan Sepinwall's list, this might have been top three. This is a fantastic song. It's really good. And the Mark Ruffalo Cure Knightley movie is Begin Again, and that is a good one. Yes, um, thank you. The director hated working with Kira Knightley and said she wasn't a good enough singer to carry the song. So maybe that's why I didn't make the list. <laughs> I've never seen a director be so mean about one of his lead actors. <laughs> Number 10, really the spinal tap of rap, a really funny movie, CB4, which is a, somehow a 30-year-old hip-hop parody. It had a low cash. Yeah, this is... and. I feel bad. A number of people brought up the fact that, like, we chose CB4 over Fear of a Black Hat from around the same time, which is also an incredibly funny movie. But CB4 is great. And on the one hand, like, this is one of the more note for note, like, parodies of any of the songs in the list because it's just straight out of Compton. <laughs> but its lyrics are so stupid and so funny. And, like, having Chris Rock doing it, it's, yeah, this had to be here. 
Chris Rock told me that he had actually had a record contract as a real rapper that never went through before he before he had success as a comedian. I guess this was uh, drawing on skills he already had. He was signed to Atlantic. It just never worked out. Okay. Yeah, number nine, here is the real Bruce Springsteen song. Crazy story behind this, as you mentioned. <laughs> the movie was supposed to be called Born in the USA. Paul Schrader wrote a script called Born in the USA. He wanted Bruce Springsteen to write the theme song to it. You can read more about this in my book, Bruce Springsteen, Stories Behind the Songs. But he and Bruce saw the title of the script sitting on his table in his songwriting room and just wrote a whole different song to it that you may know, and then felt pretty bad about it because it wasn't going to fit. It, he certainly wasn't going to give it to the movie, and it had nothing to do with the movie. And so then wrote an entirely different song, or actually unclear whether he wrote it for, it was just one of the songs that he, the many songs he was writing at the time, but this great little rock song called Light of Day, and then the movie gets retitled Light of Day and doesn't come out until 1987. <laughs> And there you have Michael J. Fox and Joan Jett duetting on it in the movie. And it's a great song, and it's actually the kind of straight-ahead guitar song that Bruce often didn't put on his albums, or almost never put on his albums. I believe Schrader wanted Bruce to star in the movie. Like, he was going to play one one of the two siblings in the band, and Bruce didn't want to do that, and so he stole the title and then did this to repay <laughs> Schrader. It's, it's really good. I Like I said, I might have been tempted to put On the Dark Side ahead of this, but this is just such a kick-ass you know, muscular rock song. I It's almost too good for the movie because when you see Joan Jett and Michael J. Fox playing it, you're like, why is this like band not actually successful? Why are they just playing the Rust Belt circuit in Ohio? I did write a book about Bruce Springsteen's songs, but it doesn't include Light of Day because of the, the rules I set for the book, which meant that there had to be a released studio version of the song by Bruce Springsteen, which there is not. Highlight of the entire 93 MTV Plugged album is his version of Light of Day. There is a studio version that no one's ever heard, which was recorded May 25th, 1983. And that's actually a great loss. I would really like to hear that. I hope it will be on a box set someday. Yeah, Mm. I heard him do it in concert once. It was incredible. He used to do it all the time. He did it a lot on the Tunnel of Love tour. And as mentioned, the 92-93 tour with the other band, he played it every single night, because in part because he was looking for a song that rocked really hard but wasn't super associated with the E Street Band. And this yeah. was the example. So this was, weirdly enough, a showpiece of that tour. And you never hear it. He almost never plays it anymore. There is one version of him playing with it. He did play it live with Joan Jett at least once. And I'm not sure he ever played it with Michael J. Fox, sadly, live. I think that's actually Michael J. Fox singing this time as opposed to in Back to the Future. Does he not sing in Back to the Future? He just doesn't play guitar. I don't no, know. that is not Michael J. Fox's singing. I never thought about all it. In Back to the Future. No, it doesn't sound remotely like him. So who's singing? Do we know? That's interesting. Uh, Mark Campbell from the soul and R&B band Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. Wow, we have new information. I did not consider that. That's amazing. Okay, there we go. Uh, number eight. This is a very, very, very funny movie. I don't. I think I would have picked the even funnier, the absolutely hilarious song Equal Rights. But this is from Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping from 2016. We actually refer to this all the time because Connor For Real, the lead character in it, played by Andy Samberg, is, does so many things that Justin Bieber specifically either did or will do. 
it's and it, like I said, Equal Rights is a vicious parody of Macklemore. His song "Same Love" is it's one of the most vicious song patterns I ever heard. But "Finest Girl" is funny too. Look, I another one where there was much spirited debate on this, but ultimately, like, if there's a tiebreaker, it is the fact that this song contains the lyric, fuck me like we fucked Bin Laden. <laughs> there's no, you can't put anything else above that on a song like this, because no, no song goes quite as hard as that one does in that moment. I'm sorry. It's also good to get some Lonely Island representation on the list, because even if they don't do things attributed to fake bands that often they've done some of the best comedy music of the past few decades. Number seven, we just talked about this on our Miley Cyrus episode, Best of Both Worlds, Hannah Montana. It does fit the criteria perfectly. All right, so let me ask you this, because do you think that this was the right Hannah Montana song to use? I would defer to Brittany Spanos, who we had talking about this on the episode the other week, as far as deep Hannah Montana cuts. I know Miley's catalog, but I do not know the Hannah Montana catalog that well. That's right. I definitely, I spent a lot of time in the run-up to this listening to many Hannah Montana songs. <laughs> I will probably just wander around the house humming some of them these days, but the, to me, it felt like obvious choice is obvious, and that's okay. Number six, I'm glad to represent this movie. 20 years old. This movie is 20 years old. Part of this is I'm realizing getting a lot of uh, blasts of mortality from the ages of these movies, but number six is from, this is great because everything is the same. The band, the movie, and the song all have the same name, School of Rock. This is an object of some debate because depending on where you look, it is sometimes referred to as teacher's pet. And I believe there's one other title that I've already forgotten about. And Legend of the Rent, which is the other song from that movie. School of Rock just has, the song itself has all of Jack Black's influences, all of just the versatility and creativity and joy of that movie folded into it. And we never get a full band performance of Legend of the Rent. So ultimately I couldn't consider it. And number five, very much earned its place here. And I think has, I think perhaps the single greatest song creation sequence in a movie or TV show ever, where you really believe they're making it in the moment. The song is It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp from Hustle and Flow. which then led to Oscar winners 3-6 Mafia. <laughs> That's absolutely right. It's just, it's a banger of a song. And the, like you said, the sequence in which Terrence Howard and the producers and Taraji and everyone are putting it together is incredible. I think it's one of the only times on film that they make hip hop production look as exciting as sort of a live band doing something, which it is in real life. I've seen it in real life. It's very cool, but it's hard a little harder to capture on film, and they really do it. It'll be a little harder now that everything's in in the box on on Pro Tools and stuff. It's good that it was a few years earlier. Yes, it's definitely a, it has much more of a DIY feel to it. Number four, almost every song is great in Josie and the Pussycats. This one is not an Adam Slester song. Even he did pretend to be nice, which is another great one. This one is three small words. Oh, 
Yeah, and I really like Pretend to be Nice, but it sounds exactly like it would have been a Fountains of Wayne song. Three Small Words is just like such a perfect slice of pop punk. And it's the opening song in which we meet Josie and the Pussycats in the movie. And it really just does such a great job of announcing them. You got Kay Hanley singing, singing this song. Of course, it's going to sound great. The writing team to this song, and I think a couple other ones in the movie, is the only time to my knowledge that Adam Durst from Counting Crows joined a sort of songwriting camp for pop. And it had great results. He maybe should have tried some more of that. This was another one where as soon as we came up with the idea for the list, I knew this was going to be really high. Number three, I think, was inevitably going to be this high, at least this high. We talked about it a little earlier. It's shallow, credited to Jackson, Maine, and Allie. AKA. (laughs) And it's from The Star is Born. And it is one of those, I remember first hearing it and really immediately knowing what a classic it, it instantly was. It wasn't even in the movie. It was in the trailer. Do you remember like how crazy people went for the Stars Born trailer, which is just basically uh, her singing I have the song. no memory. I have no memory of it. The bulk of the ori- original trailer, if I'm remembering right, is just the song playing over images of the movie. And then Gaga hits the high note. I'm off the deep end. Audiences were rapturous. People were like talking about it on social media. Like instantly, it's like, I have to go see this movie. I have to go see this movie now. And again, it's nonsensical in a way in that Jackson has come up with this whole new arrangement and taught it to his entire band in six hours since he last saw Allie and he flies her in and she's immediately able to perform it on stage in the middle of one of his shows but it's Gaga and so you go with it because of course you do I think there was an initial draft of the list where I had it substantially lower just because I think I was giving it the Lady Gaga penalty of, is it really fair to put this high because of her? And then ultimately, no, the song is incredible and culturally significant, so we had to put it there. And number two, truly funny song. And it's an interesting one because it's such a big plot point in the movie. And it's just great. Scotty doesn't know... And it's in Eurotrip. And Scotty, the main character, truly doesn't know. He finds out when Matt Damon performs this song in the movie. It turns out to be about how he doesn't know that his girlfriend is cheating on him with Matt Damon's character. This is another one that was like very gray area because technically the song is performed by Lustra, which is a real band. Here is the decision that we made. A, it's an incredible song and it's delightful and has a decent argument to be number one. But B, it is presented as what whether they're called Luster or not, I can't remember. Matt Damon is their front man. So it's the whole like Jackson Maine thing again. As long as there is a significant like non-musician singing or being a front person in some way, we said it qualified. And so that was the case. This is I have a lot of friends who are like, this is the greatest song ever written. Every year someone will say, What's the song of the summer? And they will respond, It's Scotty Doesn't Know from the movie Eurotrip. It's just it's hilarious. We had to find some kind of legal loophole to get it onto the list. As I mentioned in the entry, it did become a hit in real life after appearing in the a mild hit, I think like number sixty or something. The joke in the movie, of course, is that after he first hears it, it then becomes an enormous hit, so he hears it everywhere. Uh, which is extremely funny. (laughs) Great movie. A very underrated comedy that's from a team of writers who worked on Curb Your Enthusiasm and uh, and Seinfeld. A covertly smart, crass teen comedy. It's such a very funny movie. Alec Berg, co-creator of Barry. (laughs) And Barry. It's three comedy geniuses 
putting all their energy into making an extremely funny crass teen comedy. And finally, at number one, we mentioned this, that thing you do, the wonders. From That Thing You Do from 1996, featuring Tom Hanks, even at that point, playing the middle-aged A&R exec. I've said a lot about this already. And again, Schlesinger, like this was as great as he was at all these other things. There was nobody who was his peer when it came to writing these fake songs. And here's a movie. The idea is this. The band comes up with a song and basically the drummer changes the beat. And by turning it from like a ballad into an up-tempo piece of power pop, it suddenly like ricochets this group on the road to very brief, but very memorable stardom. And the song has to live up to that. And you hear them play it at the dance where, where Shades first um, speeds it up. You hear them perform it in a church. You hear them do it at a county fair. You see them do it on the TV show. It just comes up again and again and again. And every time it's good. And usually it's done with like minor variations, but more often than not, it's just the thing that you've been hearing all this time. And it's incredible. It should be noted that basically Adam Schlesinger more or less won a contest to have this song in the movie because they had, they solicited God knows how many versions of, they knew it had to be called That Thing You Do. They had a certain brief for it. It had to be this and this. And a bunch of songwriters submitted their version of that song. And he just far and away had the best one. A truly Darwinian process to choose that song. Another movie that whatever people remember did not do that well when it came out. It took a while for people to realize how great it was. Yeah, no, it's... There's a whole bunch on this list where it's like they they just had... They had this much longer tail after release than during release, including Scott Pilgrim, which they just announced the other day. They're now going to do like an anime series for Netflix with the entire cast returning. So that's always very heartening to hear. Absolutely. I think every single one of these movies should have an anime version, including the Ruddles <laughs> and <laughs> the highest honor any movie can get. Fun list, fun stuff to listen to, fun stuff to talk about. Alan, thanks so much for joining me. Brian, always a pleasure. And that's our show. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us five stars and a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.